Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Fred Kemp, President and CEO of the Atlantic Council. Um, uh, we're delighted to have you all here today for a sort of double pleasure. One of them is an introduction of a memorandum of understanding between the Atlantic Council and Fletcher, and I'll get to that in a second. And the other is to, uh, to have a panel uh, which uh, didn't start uh, specifically to be about Iran, uh, uh, but it will be a little bit more about Iran uh, than uh, we had intended, just showing how nimble, dynamic, uh, yeah. rapid response this partnership, partnership is, is going exactly. to be. Uh, uh, so uh, I, I want to thank our distinguished panelists. They will come up after, um, after we introduce this memorandum of understanding. Uh, and clearly, uh, Admiral uh, Jim Stavridis, Dean of the Fletcher School of Law of Diplomacy, and former Supreme Allied Commander Europe, among many other uh, uh, distinctions. Steve Hadley, uh, who will join us on the stage in a second, former National Security Advisor and, uh, and Atlantic Council Board Director, and then Fran Burwell, Atlantic Council Vice President for European Union and Special Initiatives, uh, will moderate. Um, I also want to greet uh, a, a large number of board directors here today. Thank you for being here. And I see uh, the ambassadors of Cyprus and Liechtenstein here. Any ambassadors I've missed, please don't hold it against the Atlantic Council. Uh, but we are always happy to have this, uh, the leading members of the diplomatic community here. Um, we are committed to broadening our work on global strategy, uh, what we call America's role in the world, as a means of catalyzing deeper debates on and applications of American foreign policy. Uh, it's why we launched in the Brent Scowcroft Center this year a strategy initiative to encourage robust U.S. engagement uh, with its closest allies and partners to develop a long-term vision for leading increasingly short-term minded world and turbulent world. Brent Scowcroft said to us as we set up the center that I want you not just doing policy, I want you doing strategy because how can you do policy unless you have a strategy? And he reminded us that in the Cold War it took us some time to get there but we had a strategy of containment uh, of the Soviet Union and communism uh, and then our tactics flowed out of it and what was hard was figuring out the tactics and his complaint today would be that we're too much, uh, too much tactics uh, and not enough strategy. Uh, as we move into the 2016 presidential election cycle, I know that our chairman John Huntsman and others believe uh, that uh, foreign policy will be a, a more a part of the debate than it has been in the last couple of cycles. And we at the Atlantic Council hope, uh, hope to enrich that debate ourselves. Uh, we believe that in this uh, turning point of history, maybe as important as the end of World War I, World War II, the end of the Cold War, that the U.S. and its allies and friends in, uh, around the world have to get their act together. Uh, or less benevolent forces or chaos will fill the void. And because we feel nothing can be done without collaboration with allies, and are you ready for this segue? Uh, 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 we, we want to collaborate uh, with, uh, with an organization uh, that is effective, that has a track record, uh, and that can help us multiply our own impact by joining forces. You have to co collaborate with people who want results, who want to maximize results, and who understand the world. And uh, I've been uh, stealing uh, Admiral Stavridis's ideas for years, and I'm glad I don't have to steal them any longer. <laughs> I can bring them right into the Atlantic Council. Um, so we're excited to announce a new collaborative partnership between the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University and the Atlantic Council 
Council and on our side, uh, this will be led by our Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security, but the Rafi Career Center on the Middle East and all the other uh, 10 centers and partners uh, and, and programs of the Atlantic Council will be uh, involved as well. Uh, this is the only partnership of, of its kind for our institution, I Same. believe also for yours. Uh, so it will link the two organizations across a range of issue areas in forms ranging from faculty scholar exchanges, co-hosted conferences, uh, workshops, joint programs behind centers, multimedia outreach. We hope some of this will be very plain, planful, but we also hope we can do rapid reaction like this when we feel that the circumstances uh, require. Combining our diverse strengths, uh, we hope to inform policymakers through scholarship while reinforcing the relevance of academia through practical application. So that's, uh, I, I couldn't be more pleased. I think this is uh, just a really terrific uh, uh, idea at the right time. And, I, and so I just uh, really want to thank you. And, uh, and, and, and I'm happy to launch this here at the Atlantic Council and want to turn to you for just oh. a few words. Thanks, Fred. Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you everybody for coming out today to kind of celebrate this partnership. I think it is going to be remarkable. And the conversation that we're about to unpackage with my very good friend, the former National Security Advisor Steve Hadley and Fran up here, I think is going to be a very interesting one. Not much happening today. Um, this partnership really started in a beer hall in Munich, like all good partnerships. I <laughs> um, that is right. <laughs> yeah, uh, this started, uh, I think, really about five years ago when I was the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, very uh, exalted title. But it allowed me to go beer halls in Munich whenever I wanted. And I went uh, to the Munich Security Conference, and Fred Kemp and I had a wonderful conversation. And I thought, boy, Atlantic Council, that's an organization I want to be engaged with, I want to be a part of, I want to learn more from the Atlantic Council under Fred's leadership. So flash forward a couple of years, I become the dean at the Fletcher School due to a computer error of some kind. And um, immediately my thoughts went to how can the Fletcher School be more engaged in Washington? That's kind of point one because so much happens here. We want to be part of this. Number two, can we find an organization, like in the movie Jerry Maguire, you just complete me. Can we find somebody who really matches us with strengths? Here I'd say the Harari Center and the Ferris Center at the Fletcher School. Perfect synergy. On the other hand, we have great strengths in Asia at the moment. We can bring that to the table. Fred, the Atlantic Council, wonderful strengths in the strategic planning world, which we'll talk a bit more about today. I think there are both areas where we'll synergize together and areas where we'll complete each other. So it's a, a terrific match. And then thirdly, we are very excited about our students. That's, um, of course, what we're all about, 700 marvelous graduate students, the opportunity to expose them to this world, to the think tank world, as done by, a, by anybody's measure, one of the top think tanks in the world, um, allows them to have a vision, perhaps to come and work in a place like this, to be exposed to your scholars. And I guarantee you, you will be energized as these Fletcher students come and are part of these workshops and events uh, and will be very much part of the seed corn of people that move along through ideas. So thank you from a beer hall in Munich to the stage in Washington. Here we are. Yeah, so before you all applaud this MOU, I just want to tell you that uh, there have been less 
favorable outcomes from uh, uh, events at that same uh, beer hall. But anyway, thank you. Thank you. Um, the, uh, we, we, at this point, we probably shouldn't say the name of the beer hall. But, um, so, so we're excited to kick off this effort with today's event. And it was a discussion that started on the ongoing need for interagency reform, which we're still going to be talking about, partly because I believe you're going to be writing something on this for us as well as one of our strategy pa papers. Uh, and, um, uh, but clearly, other issues arise as well. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Admiral Stavridis wrote a fantastic uh, piece in Foreign Policy not long ago about the strategic stakes involved in Greece. We'll get to that, and obviously with Iran. So let me call up the other panelists. So joining uh, Jim and me for that conversation, as I mentioned, are Steve Hadley and Fran Burwell. If you could come up. Uh, Steve is among the most prominent uh, Atlantic Council board members. He's our executive vice chair for strategy. He's the co-chair of the Middle East uh, Strategy Task Force uh, with Madeleine Albright in the Hariri Center uh, and, uh, and, and has just been a terrific advisor to everyone here at the Atlantic Council. He formerly served as National Security Advisor to George W. Bush and a founder and principal at Rice Hadley Gates, an international strategic consulting firm. Uh, He's currently serving on the State Department's Foreign Affairs Policy Board. I won't list everything else he's doing, though I do think uh, uh, the fact that he's a member of Yale University's Kissinger Papers Advisory Board is important. Uh, uh, a strategist uh, 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 looking at the papers of uh, another uh, amazing strategist. He's also serving as chairman of the United States Institute uh, of peace, uh, wh whom we work with very often on various things. So thanks for being here, and thanks for everything that you're doing leading our strategy initiative. And then Fran will be the moderator. Uh, and uh, Fran uh, is one of this town's, I would say any town's leading experts on Europe and the European Union. She's our vice president for European Union and special initiatives. Her areas of expertise include uh, US-EU relations, development of the European Union's foreign defense policies and a range of transatlantic economic and policy issues. When we want to get something going here, whether it was a global business and economics program, whether it was our young leaders program, we really uh, turned to Fran to, 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 to get it going. Uh, prior to joining the council, she was the executive director of the Center for International uh, and Sec Security Studies, CISSS, and the University of Maryland, uh, and she was also the founding executive director of Women in International Security. So let me, at this point, Pass to you, Fran, and you can get the ball rolling. Thanks very much. Thank you, Fred. It's a real pleasure to moderate a panel with such distinguished panelists on it. Um, and as Fred indicated, I'm a former academic, and so I'm very enthusiastic about this partnership between the Fletcher School and the Council, and I know that both organizations will be stronger because of it. Um, I'm keen to know a bit more about the substance of this partnership, uh, but I actually want to talk about it in the context of the two negotiations that have been concluded this week. I think we can all agree that with Greece and Iran, this has been a remarkable week for diplomacy. Um, and I'm sure it's also having lots of interesting lessons for your students as well. Um, but let me first turn to Admiral Stavridis, and we'll talk first about Iran and, and then about Greece, and then I'm eager to open the floor to questions uh, on those subjects and others from the audience. Um, you've led several military commands, and so when you look at at what has happened, what the agreement is with Iran. 
as a longtime military leader, what are the strategic implications that you see? Uh, we've seen Iran playing a larger role in the region recently, uh, both against ISIS, both supporting the Syrian regime. We have the prospect of Iranian oil now coming on the global market. Uh, what does all this mean for the strategic balance mm -hmm. in the region? The other thing that I just want to um, point to is how well are we in the US government situated to mm -hmm. deal with this new, are we constructed the right way mm -hmm. to deal with this new environment that we mm -hmm. may find? Well, that's a kind of an enormous couple yeah. of questions. But let me start with the Iran question. Um, I think we are rightfully um, hopeful. Uh, mm -hmm. There has been an enormous amount of work that's gone into bringing this negotiation thus far. But uh, I remain skeptical. I am, like a lot of people, eagerly awaiting visibility on the text and in particular on the verification regime. I think that's very central to this. But to your question, Fran, we need to have a very gritty conversation, a debate about the agreement itself. But I think you're right to ask the strategic question here. Uh, the first thing that'll happen is there'll be a golden shower of money that's gonna hit Iran. Um, $100 billion freeing up, six to 8% improvement in their GDP. Um, Iran's defense budget is about $30 billion. So picture a day in the United States where our $600 billion budget suddenly had access to $2 trillion hitting. That's the equivalent of what's happening. Now, there's a counter argument that, no, it'll be spent on domestic uh, gratification. That's been promised by Rouhani. Maybe, um, and I hope so. But I think that's strategic point number one, is a huge basket of resources going to the regime. Secondly, always look at the history. And you know, we tend to think of Iran here in the United States as kind of a kind of a mid-sized power with some kind of regional ambitions. I, you know, in my conversations, my reading, my study, I find a lot of thinking out of Iran that is really quite Persian, and that there are many echoes of the Persian idea, uh, which would be that of a very distinct culture, one that has a great throw weight in the world. Um, if you look back at the, at the Persian Empire, and I'm Greek-American, so I, I stipulate uh, a certain amount of DNA involved here, but um, look back at the Persian Empire, which at one time ruled 80% of the population of the earth. The Iranians think of themselves as inheritors of a global tradition, a global outlook, and I think they will continue to push on global events. That's Hezbollah, that is, changing uh, functionality in the world through uh, application of these resources. So I think it's not just a, uh, a regional challenge. And then lastly, on the strategic question, you have to look at the effect on our allies. Mm -hmm. um, we've heard uh, very forcefully this morning from uh, President Netanyahu, excuse me, Prime Minister Netanyahu, you've heard uh, fairly forcefully from the Saudis. Um, I think you're going to see uh, a great deal of strategic cost to the United States and our alliance structures uh, in the region. So those are three big picture kinds of things that I think 
we need to consider as we look at this deal, in addition to the, the very detailed granular aspects of will this or will this not prevent a nuclear weapon for the next 10 years. Are we set up to look at this new world and, and to think about um, it in the right way? Well, this is really the question we're, we're going to talk about today, and we're in the presence of one, yeah. of the, one of the world's experts on the National Security Council, the staff of the National Security Council, and the interagency process. Um, I'll simply say I went to my first interagency meeting, Steve, in 1981 when I was a lieutenant, and I had been sent over to State Department. I was kind of seconded over there. And I was, work, I was working for this really smart guy named Richard Haas. I, I don't know whatever happened to him. But, uh, it's in New York somewhere. So we went to one of those you know, kind of low level, way down, way before the principals committee, way before the deputies committee, you know, the, the really the gritty working level meeting. So we went into this big room, and there were people there from all around the government. And the NSC staffer who was running it came fluttering into the room slightly late and sat down. And, and the topic was strategic approaches to China. So this is 1981. So immediately we launch into, well, let's go around the room and see what everybody in the interagency thinks about China and interagency approaches. And you know, people said this and that. And, and we got to halfway around the table. And one of the people from some agency held forth for 15 minutes about China and its importance and went back into the details of every agreement that had ever been signed. And, um, and the NSC staffer said, thank you. That was an enormous amount of information. And what, what agency are you from? And the guy said, um, well, I'm, I'm actually here representing the US Postal Service. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a long way of saying um, the interagency process is not uh, perfect. I think it's probably <laughs> a lot better than it was in 1981. And I, I think it's come a long way. Yeah, but we never left the Postal Service. <laughs> <laughs> My, my point is organization matters and how you structure these things matter. And, and I'd add that personality matters. And um, Steve and I worked when I was senior military assistant to Secretary of Defense during a period of time when there was a lot of acrimony in the National Security Council staff in the mid-2000s. Uh, and, and thus, personality matters. And then lastly, capacity matters to look at. How many crises can you deal with and look at? Um, and I think that's where we have the greatest challenge today, as, as we try to look at Iran with Syria, uh, Libya, uh, Russia, South China Sea, cyber, and everything else. Where's the capacity? T to solve that, you need a strategy. And that, I think, is where we are not well positioned. Thank you very much. Steve, you've spent a lot of time in the White House and in the interagency process. Um, as you look at this agreement that came out, what would your advice be to President Obama? We've seen the opposition, not only from Prime Minister Netanyahu and others, but from Senator McCain and others on the Hill. So how is he going to be able to move this forward? What should he be looking for and be thinking about doing over the next few months to get this going? You know, I'm going to sound a little defeatist in some sense, but a lot of it, uh, the ad I've been giving this administration, as have a lot of people, advice over two years about what they ought to do to provide a context for this agreement. And um, they, for a reason that I will get to, they haven't done a lot of it. So what are the kinds of things that could have been done. Well, they actually would address the things that Admiral Stavridis talked about. Um, 
disagreement, first of all, I think we a little bit lost sight of what our objective was. And I think five years ago when the president said our job is to prevent Iran from having the capability for a nuclear weapon, that was the right objective. And that would have meant no enrichment, no reprocessing. But we shifted off of that to another objective, which is, well, we want to lengthen the time in which they could get a nuclear weapon and give us the time to respond if they try. Well, that's a different objective. And it's a slipperier objective and a harder objective. And let me give you one example of the kind of issue we're going to have to look at, verification. If that's your objective now, to try to have enough time so you can detect and do something if Iran goes for a nuclear weapon, then verification is terribly important. Verification is really hard. We have been doing this for 30 or 40 years. We used to do it in Soviet arms control, strategic arms control agreement, and I negotiated a number of them. But their verification was easy because you're dealing with big things, submarines, missiles, bombers, and you had negotiated inspection and national tech technical means. And you could have a pretty good confidence that you knew what, were what was going on. But now we've moved, we sort of moved it into the chemical weapons convention, now we're moved it even further in towards what is Iran doing inside its program? Where are its centrifuges? Is it hiding centrifuges? Is it hiding stockpiles of materials? These are much harder to verify with limited national technical means. The easiest things are what we could have done if we had kept the notion of no nuclear capability. Bans are a lot easier to verify than limitations and restrictions. So one of the problems is we're now in a world which puts more pressure on verification. And it's not clear to me you can design a verification regime that's going to give you the kind of confidence you'd want to have. So there are a lot of things were done. That was a, a very important shift. And I think it's going to be the subject of a lot of conversations when the Congress reviews this. Working two years ago to reassure our friends and allies in the way Admiral Stavrid has suggested. There was a lot we could have and should have been doing to do that. Three, being more active to confront what Iran is doing on the ground in Yemen, Syria. Syria is a tragedy which we have just let unfold, Iraq and elsewhere. Uh, we should have been working at that for about the last two years and we have not done so. And on a lot of these things, it's awful late. And that, of course, has added the, the consultations with the Congress, which we could have done a better job, as we used to do in the arms control era, when we had congressional oversight groups and the like. Why is that? And I think it goes, in some sense, to this bandwidth problem that Admiral Stavridis was talking about. The National Security Council, Brent, used, Brent Scowcroft used to say, in the Cold War, and I'm running on, and I'll stop. In the Cold War, at any point in time, we had one big thing, which is the Soviet Union, which we had a strategy, and we worked on the <laughs> tactics, and one or two crises. Well, Susan Rice has 12 crises going full boil all the time. And they are in crisis management mode all the time. And if all you're doing is in crisis management mode, all you're going to have is crisis because <laughs> you're not putting in place strategies to head off crises. And it also means that when you active, have an active negotiation as they had with the Iran nuclear issue, your bandwidth probably only allows you to do 
the negotiation. And I pleaded with the White House, establish a task force that is as robust as the group of people negotiating the agreement to develop these other things that you need to do to wrap around the agreement and do that over a two-year period so they all come together at the same time. And I think it's simply a bandwidth problem. They just didn't have the resources to do anything really more than just negotiate the agreement. And that's a problem. Can I just pick up a, a point? Briefly, because I want to get to Fred. Okay. Um, I would just say that one solution to the bandwidth problem, you mentioned task forces, are efforts of task forces not necessarily in government, like your task force that Madeleine Albright and Stephen Hadley are doing under the aegis of the Atlanta Council to look at the Middle East. I think using that kind of mechanism and the unbelievable intellectual firepower in places like the Atlanta Council or the Fletcher School or the Kennedy School or CSIS to do that kind of lifting because you're right, the NSC staff cannot do it right now. And that's one of the reasons, as Fred will say, the Atlantic Council is trying to get strategic thinking done because we did, we came up with a list of 12 crises in the two years before the end of the Bush administration that we thought we might have in front of us. And we decided we need to do some thinking about them to develop some initial strategies. And we farmed some to the intelligence community, some to other agencies. We went quietly around to some think tanks around and said, if you would do a strategy on what we do with this crisis, there'd be some people in the White House that would be very interested in reading it. I think the huge opportunity for the kinds of affiliations now between Fletcher and the Atlantic Council is to do on the outside the kind of strategic thinking that we don't have the time to do on the inside. Very much so. Very much. Just outsource the National Security Council work to us. <laughs> well, then yeah. they can implement it. So, um, Steve mentioned, Fred, that the importance of reassuring allies and, and working with allies. But in fact, we've been working with the European allies very closely on the whole Iran issue. And one can actually see the negotiation as a real success for transatlantic diplomacy in many regards. Um, but now we're talking about implementing it. And we've had some skepticism expressed here about Iran's future role in the region, et cetera. Where do you come down? And I would just point to, in my reading so far of the European reaction, the EU reaction to uh, this agreement, it's very positive. And even with the UK Foreign Secretary talking about uh, Iran being a constructive partner throughout the region. So I'm, do you find yourself as optimistic as Foreign Secretary Hammond, or are there some real concerns that we need to work with the Europeans on? Yeah, I thank, thank you for that, Fran. First of all, let me concede, like I suppose most people in the audience and maybe, I have not read the 80 to 100 pages and the five sort of uh, documents about implementation. Uh, so I actually think for all the people standing up today saying it's a bad agreement, it's a good agreement, I, I, I think it's really unfortunate. Let's look at it. And the other thing is you really don't know whether it's a bad or good agreement until you see how it's implemented. So a bad agreement can be, or not great agreement can be implemented well, and a terrific agreement can be implemented incredibly badly. And we've seen issues with North Korea and terrible implementation. And then you look at the Reagan-Gorbachev talks, and I covered all of them when I was at the Wall Street Journal, and nobody could predict where they were going to lead, just as no one can predict where the Iran-US uh, deal today leads. For example, um, President Obama uh, and his, com his, his presentation this morning was live on television in Iran. 
you know, that's a virus in the system. Where does that lead? Uh, we know through polling that Iranians are actually more pro-American than many people in that whole region. Where does that lead? We actually don't know, but we can help shape it through uh, more people-to-people -people exchanges, what the Germans, the West Germans used to call change through growing closer. Uh, so we have to talk a lot about the I word you're talking about, which is implementation. And I would see it on different levels. One of them is implementation of the agreement, what you're talking about. And Congress should take a close look at this like they did, and we talked about that before, Steve, uh, at, the, at the agreements during the Soviet period. Uh, then you look at the next level, and that is Syria. And this gets to your point, Fran. Um, there is no doubt that Iran is worried about ISIS, maybe more than we are. Uh, there's no doubt that they want to take it on, and there's no doubt that they might see the U.S. as actually a potential ally in doing that. What they're doing in Syria is totally counterproductive. What they're doing with Shia militia in Iraq is pouring gas on the flames. And so if they want to take it on, we're going to have to really talk about that, and, 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 and maybe we can have a civil conversation about, uh, about how one moves to a better situation in Syria. I don't know. It's a long way from where we are. Then there's another level, which is our talk with our Gulf allies and reassurance with our Gulf allies, absolutely crucial in the current situation. Look, the bell ringer success over time is can you get, uh, can you get Saudi Arabia and Iran to actually get into talks of their own uh, and help uh, bridge this Sunni-Shia uh, uh, gap, which I think is the most dangerous thing we've got going. And so I, I, for me, this is, uh, this is what you've got to look at. And, what, and then I just want to come back to, in, in, to the Soviet period again, because it's not equal, we know that, but it has been a sort of Cold War. And I think the Iranians see this as a limited Cold War nuclear agreement, while we've viewed it as something a little broader than that. The real question now is can we walk and chew gum at the same time? We've limited our scope right now to this nuclear agreement. During the Soviet period, we didn't do that. We had nuclear talks, but we also had the Helsinki process, and we had human rights talks. Uh, we, ha we had a containment regime, and we were militarily strong. The question is, can we now shift to more of that kind of approach to the region, and then what would that look like? So I, I think implementation is, is the really big challenge, and anyone today who says they know for sure this is going to turn out well or badly, I think, I, I think we just aren't going to know that for a decade or so. I think that's a fascinating idea of a Helsinki process uh, in the Middle East, and would be fascinating to, to follow that. But I'm going to turn now to the other set of negotiations that has dominated Europe and transatlantic relations over the last couple of months, and, and that's uh, Greece. Um, Iran is, to some degree, uh, a demonstration of what we can do when we work together, but Greece shows how difficult things can be in Europe right now. Uh, and most of the attention in the discussions about Greece has been on the economics of it. And we can talk about that in the questions if, if people want to, but I'd really like to focus on the geostrategic. And Admiral Stavridis, you had a really, Fred mentioned your article. We have an agreement right now. We don't know if it's going to be passed by the Greek parliament or the Greek parliament will do what needs to be done tomorrow. There was a failure overnight to find some short-term liquidity for Greece as well mm -hmm. um, by the Eurozone. So um, we could have it fall apart. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think are the strategic implications of that, and are you still concerned about that? Yes, I think that Greece is not just an economic problem, but it, its role as a kind of challenge to the, the European project is, is profoundly important strategically for the United States. And Eisenhower said, the best Europe is a united Europe. 
and uh, we have reaped the benefit of that for decades now since the end of the Second World War. And you can sort of, to steal Emma Skye's evocative title about Iraq, you can sort of feel the unraveling beginning. And I am very concerned that we are not looking at that strategic importance because if Greece is crashed out, and, and I think it's still 50-50, um, then I think you have a Greece that is angry, disaffected, and will become extremely difficult in the councils of Europe. They're still members of the European Union and of NATO, which are both consensus-driven organizations. So to have a member of those organizations who is rebuffed in economic despair and becoming uh, very, very challenged in every way will do nothing but put those organizations in irons, a nautical expression meaning your, your ship sails have no wind in them. Uh, and I am very concerned about it. Secondly, Greece's geostrategic position, its geography as this kind of anchor on the southeast corner of the alliance um, near the Levant, across from Turkey, Syria, et cetera. And thirdly, the migration piece, which is building up. Greece will have no capability to deal with all of that. Um, so I think th those kind of strategic elements ought to be in the conversation. That doesn't mean necessarily that the Europeans then decide, well, we're going to go ahead and give Greece another $90 billion. They may not, but I am simply arguing it's more than just the economy. It's the geopolitics and as well. We haven't heard much of those arguments. We have not. It's we been have mostly not. the finance Mostly ministers. from the United States. Yeah. And, and that is, I think, our role is to uh, bring that argument to the table because it's in our interest more than anybody's to have a united Europe. Well, let me actually bring Steve Hadley in on that. Um, we have seen some interest by the, or some comments from the United States, primarily from the Treasury Secretary. Mm -hmm. Uh, what do you think the role of the United States should be? I think the Admiral has made, uh, Jim has made a, a good argument for why we should be concerned about what happens to Greece and uh, the Eurozone. But on the other hand, one can also argue that it's their currency and we wouldn't especially appreciate the Europeans coming over and telling us what to do about Puerto Rico, which is about to go into default. So, but what do you think the role of the United States should be? You've had to advise U.S. presidents on what the U.S. should do in particular situations. Well, you know, one of the problems is we're focused on Greece, but I think Greece is both a cause, but Greece is also a symptom of the problems that Europe is facing today. And it is a crisis that I think is brought on in some sense because the EU has been an elite project. Uh, brought to the European people by elites and whenever the populations have had an opportunity through referendums to have a referendum on the EU project, I think roughly half the time they've turned it down. So one of the problems is that there is a crisis of legitimacy in the European project within the European people. And that's really the problem they're going to have to come to grips with. And that's the extent to which I think Greece is a symptom and is a, a, as well as a cause. And so the issue is, then becomes, well, what do the United States care about it? And I think we have to, again, look at the history. Um, the European project, which really began after the 
uh, end of the World War II, and you know this very well as a student of this period, was always an American-European project. It was something we were going to do together because two world wars showed us that the United States' interests are grievously affected by what happens in Europe. And we needed a Europe that would have some coherence, some prosperity, some stability, and some peace. And so the European project was a joint American-European project very much in our interest. And I think one of the things that happened after the end of the Cold War and as the European project seemed to go forward with Maastricht and all the rest is Americans kind of took their attention away. We figured, you know, it was largely been done. The Europeans can finish it themselves. We've got other fish to fry. 9-11, you know, you name it, the whole list. And a couple things have happened. One, we have now seen the problems in the design of the European structure that have now emerged in this crisis and need to be addressed. And then secondly, um, Russia has changed its policies about two years ago. And from a, pos from a system where Russia seemed to be converging with Europe, we're now on a diverging path. And you know, I think the United States was understandably slow to respond to both because Europe cannot manage by itself this kind of Russia. And I think Europe continu continues to need the advice and counsel of a friend to try to help the European pro pro project succeed. So I think the United States needs to re-engage. We're doing that in the security realm in order to, in, with some deployment of forces, which I think is overdue, to send the message to President Putin that if he tries to do to expand what he's doing in Ukraine or do it elsewhere, he's going to run up against NATO forces and American forces. Hopefully that will deter him. But we also need to get involved intellectually as friends uh, and, and, and partners to do what we can to help the Europeans think through this crisis in the future of Europe. Because if the European project fails, I'm not quite sure what the alternative. And then that is one of the things that Fred ought to talk a bit about because the Atlantic Council, even despite its name, like a lot of think tanks in Washington, talked a lot about what Europe and the United States could do together and not so much about what the future of Europe is going to look like. And it's time maybe for the Atlantic Council to come home a little bit. And Fred, let me <laughs> send you. Uh, that's a softball. Let me talk about, a bit about that. And first of all, it's great to see Damon's just come into the room. Damon and Fran are leading uh, a, a new initiative here called the Future Europe Initiative. And it's new and old at the same time. We've been talking about all these issues at, at the Atlantic Council. Uh, but, you know, there was never this... There's, there are two things that are coming together right now. Uh, and all of you know I've been a German watcher for a long time. But there are two things coming together. One of them is Germany is in a, more, a, great, a, a position of greater influence in Europe than it's been in since World War II. It's just the way it is. But it is in that position of influence facing the biggest danger to the European project in 65 years since the birth of the European coal and steel community. It is complicated. You have threats from the east with the Russians in Ukraine. You have threats from the south with immigration and then radical Islam throughout 
the EU, and I would say most European Union countries are more worried about that than they are about Ukraine at the moment. I'm not sure if they're right, but, the, but that's where they are at the moment. You have demographic issues. You have uh, Eurozone crisis issues. Uh, you know, Greece is the tip of the iceberg, and, and uh, it's distracting us a little bit right now from, from these larger questions, but these larger questions are, are ultimately more important. So we're going to ramp up at the Atlantic Council because we see all of that, and we understand that the traditional approach to transatlantic relations doesn't quite work. And what I want to embrace that you said is the, the, Europe's dysfunctions are a strategic threat to the United States. And we need to understand that. We also need to understand what role we can play. It might be limited. In some places, it might be larger. But I think we at least have to understand again in this town that uh, what we want to achieve in the world in the next 20 or 30 years is going to be a lot harder if Europe is in dysfunction or even falling apart. And so, uh, so we've got dangers on the horizon uh, in Europe. Uh, and we're looking at Ukraine, we're looking at ISIS, but I really think we have to also take a look at Europe, uh, Europe again as well. I don't want to over-exaggerate it right now. Uh, it could turn, uh, you could turn things in a positive direction right now, but if you do positive scenarios looking out 20, 30 years, uh, if you do the three scenarios, as you always do in these strategic foresight things, you do positive, you do negative, and you do in the middle, it's really hard to work the positive one right now. The negative one's easy to work, you, you know, with everything I just stretched out. But what turns Europe and gets it new motivation, gives it a new fresh narrative, and gives it a galvanizing purpose again? I think that's, that's where they have to find themselves to, but we're a long way from, yeah. from there. And let me just follow up with that because, um, I mean, I think this is crucial understanding Europe and where Europe is going. Europe is changing. We don't know where. I don't think the Europeans know where to. And yet it's essential with Iran, for example, that Europe be a strong partner. We would never have gotten this agreement without the Europeans being part of it too. And in fact, they carried the water in the initial stages. So a key point of that is Germany. Germany has been a leader in Europe on the <coughs> economic side, but less so on the political slash security side. You know Germany well. There's a discussion going on in Germany about how much leadership it can take on uh, in terms of the political, security, even defense in Europe, where it has usually taken a backseat. Um, where do you think Germany is going to be after this Greek crisis? It does seem to me there's quite a bit of a split in Europe. And I'm wondering about the leadership of particularly the chancellor, uh, but Germany writ large in Europe, and whether that impacts the ability of Europe to be our partner. I, I'm going to be really brief, because I, I'd love to hear uh, the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe and the former National Security Advisor, who have dealt actually more closely than I have with Germany in this way, answer this. Um, I, I think it's a huge question. It's almost, it's almost like a novel you could write, where a country is really, uh, in, in 33 to 45, this great country of all this great culture and all this great history kind of blows itself up and blows up a lot of the world in the process, and then gets rebuilt. It was divided, then it comes out of that, it's reunified, and now it's facing a new crisis. It's almost as if it's been given a second chance to lead in a responsible manner. But the question is, does it have the means and does it have the capabilities both internally, militarily, economically, to take on the enormity of this task? And the answer is, it is, it is too big to be equal to the other European players, but it's not big enough to take this on. 
And so it has to take this on in unity with others. And I worry about the fragmenting of the French-German relationship. I worry about the drifting away of the British uh, toward Europe. And if the Germans don't have the British and the French to work together to solve these issues, then I don't know how in heaven's name you, you stand up to Vladimir Putin or solve all the other issues we're talking about. So I think Germany's going to have to show. And the other thing is we've, become, we've been very lucky with Chancellor Merkel. Uh, I'm not 100% sure seeing what's coming after uh, that we will continue to be so lucky with German leadership. So uh, Germany doesn't want to lead. It has to lead. This is another reason why the U.S. ought to be there, because most of the challenges externally that Germany is and, and Europe are facing is actually too big for Europe as well. And so I, I think this is a much trickier moment in history than is generally recognized here. It really does rest on Germany's shoulders, uh, but it's got to be, it's got to be in, 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 in a European coalition that the moment doesn't exist. And then again, you're right about the North-South. If you travel in the south of Europe right now, the attitudes toward Germany are not positive. Uh, and and, and uh, the attitudes toward austerity are not positive. And, and one shouldn't overestimate that. Uh, but on the other hand, you see old historical slogans and animosities coming a little bit more up and seeping up at the moment. Do either of you want to comment on Germany? And then I do want to get to the audience. Let, let me make Steve, one please. thing on this. Um, I think it. Fred's comment shows the problem and the peril in Europe, because the real question is, who speaks for Europe today? And who has a vision that can motivate all of Europeans? I mean, and I, others are more expert than I, but I think the European project has become a heavily bureaucratic exercise. They have their systems and their processes. I think it's not a very strategic exercise, and I think it's lacking in vision and lacking in leadership. And I'll give you one example. We're partly in the Ukraine crisis because when, uh, before the Maidan, when Ukraine was talking with the EU, and you know this better than I, uh, the proposal from the Russians was, let's sit down, the EU, Ukraine, and Russia, and talk about how Ukraine could move closer to Europe without impairing economically Russia. And the answer from the EU was, no, sorry, the EU only talks to the applicant for membership. We don't talk to any third parties. Now, you can understand in a bureaucratic world why that should be true. But from a strategic standpoint, given the interests Russia had in this, it was a strategic mistake. And I think that's problem. Problem for Europe is it is in this situation that it's, it's either going to go back or it's going to have to go forward. But I don't think it can stay where it is. And I think it's dangerous for a Europe that really does not have a uniform vision, doesn't have a sense of strategy, and doesn't have legitimate leaders who can speak for, the, for Europe. And yet that's where we are. I may be. You're the expert. Not at all. I am like others. I'm, I'm still cautiously optimistic because if you look at the long throw of history, and, and Europe has spent 2,000 years at war ripping each other apart, an unmatched record of death, destruction, and rapine. Um, yet in 70 years, since the end of the war, they have managed to kind of put something together. And it is very bureaucratic, and it's lacking in vision. I agree with all that. Um, on the other hand, 
so much of life is compared to what? And you know, compared to where Europe's been for 2,000 years, they've moved strongly. And I think the human capital is very strong there, the, mm -hmm. uh, the capability. And you know, the numbers are, are really quite impressive. This is a $16 trillion a year economy. It matches our own in size, slightly bigger, correct? So there's the material there. The, the threat I would underline, and you kind of flipped it out as one word, and I bet very few people noticed it, the word is demographics. Um, in so many ways for nations, geography is not destiny. Demography is, is destiny. destiny. Right. And <clears throat> the lights are going out population-wise in many parts of Europe. And that, I think, is the real challenge. And you know, I asked a, a, the Polish uh, commander once, well, you know, your, your population's really declining quite a bit. Um, he said, oh, we, we know how to solve that problem immediately. I said, oh, that's great. He said, the women need to have more children. <laughs> I said, well, that's a terrific. Spoken like a man, check. right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> more thought seriously needs to be devoted to that piece of the problem, along yeah. with all the other questions that Fred so aptly raised. But put me down cautiously optimistic, taking full accord with you, Dr. Hadley, on the overall vision of the project state. Well, I'm also moving around the Atlantic mm -hmm. Council as being cautiously optimistic about uh, Europe, but I think the leadership issue is one that really mm -hmm. we need. We have Chancellor Merkel, and then we are not clear where that yeah. lives. The leadership right. vision is coming from I, I, in Europe. I, I want to say one thing on this. First of all, as you say this, we lost a real terrific person this week, Philippe, Miss, uh, Philippe Misfelder, uh, a 35-year-old rising star of the Young Union uh, through thrombosis and lung. And, and uh, so I just want to say his family, Germany, uh, those of us who knew him respected him a great deal. It's a great loss, and he was a great uh, hope for the future. On demography, it's not just the demography of, uh, of it's also you're not integrating minorities exactly. that are growing no, no, exactly. faster. No, yeah. so, yeah, no yeah, the yeah. United States would have a demographic problem yeah. if we didn't encourage yeah. immigration and, yeah. and, and integrate. That's, yeah. you know, nations are, they all get a superpower, yeah. and our superpower, although we're flawed, is integration. We yeah. bring, bring nations together here, and we fail in a lot of ways doing it, but the Europeans don't even want to try, and that, I think, is the yeah. highest risk for Europe going forward. So let's open this we've, uh, to the audience. We've raised a whole lot of questions. And we don't have to stick with Iran and Greece, but we can. And I see a lot. Let me start there and then here, right there afterwards. So <coughs> gentlemen. Uh, Andre Alario, Ada Institute. Could I ask all distinguished panelists uh, to develop a little bit on the topic you have already touched, Russia, and from two at least facets. Uh, one, uh, uh, Steve Hadley has mentioned Ukrainian crisis. And may I ask you, both, all of you, whether you think this is a Ukrainian crisis or Russian-Ukrainian war? And if it is Ukrainian crisis, what is the difference between this crisis and, let's say, Russian-Georgian war a few years ago when you were in the Security Council? And on the other hand, what would be your recommendation for strategic response? to these either crisis or to war? OK, well, that's like a panel and a half all in itself. Right. <laughs> um, so is this part of a pattern that we're going to have to deal with, of Georgia, Ukraine, or is this just a Ukraine crisis? 
Do you want to say a few words to that, Steve? Uh, I wanna, we have a sure. lot of questions. So the I answer is sure that we, have. we don't know. We don't know. When, um, when Putin went into Georgia in 2008, we all said, the risk is today Georgia, tomorrow Crimea, and the Baltics the day after. <laughs> well, you know, he's two-thirds of the way there. So we don't know where this is going, and it will depend a little bit on decisions President Putin and Russian people make, but it will also depend a lot on our response. And that's why we've been talking a lot about what our response should be in terms of deterring Russia, on the one hand, which is to how you deal with the Russia-Ukraine war, and in terms of supporting Ukraine so Ukraine succeeds, which is the best thing we can do to to, I think, to deter deepening the crisis. And I have to use my skunk at the picnic comment. It is interesting <clears throat> that Europe has put two, something like $240, $260 billion into Greece and is talking about putting another $55 billion into Greece. And at the same time, the, the EU, the United States, and the IMF together have only come up with $25 billion for Ukraine. This somehow lacks a little strategic balance. So this is the problem. Yeah, I would, I agree with this observation. I would show, I would say that this shows the value of getting in the club. That's for um, sure. That Greece is a point. member of NATO and a member of the yeah. European Union and Ukraine is neither. What I would say to the gentleman is, um, I think what we have seen is an invasion. An invasion is defined as the imposition of armed troops on sovereign territory without the permission of that nation for political purpose. That's an invasion. That's occurred. We've seen an annexation of Crimea. That's occurred. You could have a debate about whether this is a full-blown war or the so-called hybrid warfare that's going on. The thing to watch, and, and Dr. Hadley put his finger on it immediately, is the pattern of behavior. And it's also Transnistria, by the way, and, um, and movements in other areas. And so what should we do about it? I think we should, uh, we should be rallying NATO, which we are. We should be continuing the sanctions on Russia, which we are. And I would add, this is controversial, I think we should be arming the Ukrainians so that they can be more than simply a speed bump and inflict some level of cost as this behavior continues. Um, I'm going to be very brief. I think Fran is right to, to get more questions and maybe Shorter one answers. person per no or one person per question. Whatever it's you're the moderator. <laughs> uh, uh, two things. Uh, our aim has to be to bring Russia into a Europe whole and free and at peace in its rightful place. Mm -hmm. Something you always talk sure. about, Steve Hadley. I agree. Until we can make that happen, we have to prevent for, for Russia from preventing others from coming into a Europe whole and free and peace, and that means Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, and so I think this is a bigger test for Europe than Greece, to be frank. I think if Europe fails this test, I actually agree with George Soros here, it's going to have ramifications that are going to be knock-on and very bad for Europe. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and Europe has not yet stood up to it as a strategic issue. It's more of an inner political issue. Can we get this sanction through? Can we get that sanction through? And I think we're going to have to come together to face up to the fact that even if we don't want to be in a cold war with, uh, or in the case of Ukraine, a hot war with Vladimir Putin, he's in one with us. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to deny it, you, you, you just, even if you don't want it to be that way, you have to accept reality. Can I get a mic down in the front here? Here. Here. 
Microphone over here, please. No Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm Harlan Ullman with a foot in both camps. First, I'd like to congratulate Fred and Jim. This is a terrific arrangement, Thanks. and this has been a great panel. Uh, my question is rather somber. Uh, supposing the deal with Iran goes wrong, and obviously the way that it goes wrong could dictate the response, whether Congress decides or Senate overrides a veto or whether the Iranians do something. Could you speculate on what you see could happen if this deal is not consummated and if it uh, turns out to be a no-go? Um, I think that if we don't have this deal, we revert to sanctions, uh, facing the fact that we're going to see diminishment and lacking enthusiasm from some of our partners. Again, to your point, Dr. Ullman, depending on how it goes bad, if it's perceived that the US simply puts a spike in this thing, we're going to have a great deal of difficulty rallying more support. But we will try to keep a sanctions regime in place. And I think <clears> we start <throat> to look at options like cyber, uh, special forces, more coordination with other allies in the region, notably the Israelis. And we start to examine options, kinetic options, hopefully short of a full-blown war. Um, I'm not a believer that, if, that this is a choice between this agreement and a war. I think there's still middle options in there, as I've just discussed. I need to remind everybody, this is the second time we've reached an agreement with Iran on their nuclear program. And the first time was 2003-2004, when the EU-3 reached an agreement with Iran in which they suspended their enrichment program and were negotiating with the EU-3 to get rid of it altogether. And what changed was the politics in Iran and the election of Mani Najad, who ran on the platform that the Iranians who negotiated that agreement were traitors and should be thrown into prison. And one of those was Rouhani, now president of Iran. So we've had one of these come across Iran politics. The North Korean agreement came a cropper on other grounds in the, in the 1990s. So these are not done deals. They are difficult to implement, and a lot of bumps can come on the road. And the burden for that is going to be largely on the next president rather than this one. We got the gentleman back here in the middle. Mike? In front of you. Thank you. He's been patient. Yes. Uh, Meto Koloski, United Macedonian Diaspora. Uh, today, the Bulgarian foreign minister spoke at CSIS and basically said that uh, the Western Balkans are, have to be integrated into EU. Otherwise, the Europe whole free and at peace project would not be complete. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on sort of what the Greek strategy should be now that, you know, it is facing this uh, obstacle, but they've always said that foreign policy, they're very strong. And so Macedonia has been kept out of NATO for the last seven years. And so, uh, you know, what should we be doing? What should the U.S. be doing? What should be, uh, you know, the EU, European, and German response to this as well? Let me actually, um, we're at the Atlantic Council ramping up for the 2016 Warsaw NATO Summit. And one of the issues on that is enlargement in general. Uh, and Montenegro as well, and, and we had a discussion the other day with some of the Georgians about the possibility of MAP. Um, so is this the right time to be talking about this, to be talking about NATO enlargement or a year from I, now? I think each nation um, is a sort of individual case. My, my personal view is Montenegro and Macedonia are both ready for membership. I think the obvious problem for Macedonia is solving the 
Greek uh, issue with the name Macedonia. Again, I'm a, I'm a Greek-American. I think I understand it. But um, I think the Greeks at this point probably have larger fish to fry, as the saying goes, and uh, <laughs> larger glasses of ouzo to drink. And, uh, and I, I think now would be a good time to answer your question, what should people do? The United States, I think this is a good opportunity to send a terrific career diplomat to try and negotiate this thing. It, it, it might be a good moment to give it a try. It's an example of what Dr. Hadley's talking about, where sometimes a friend from the outside can lean in and help solve a problem. Yeah. Let's get another, goodness, um, in the back there. Did I see it at this side? Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, first of all, congratulations for the new partnership between the Fletcher School and the Atlantic Council. My name is Nicholas Hart. I'm a student at the Fletcher School. I'm yeah. from Germany and I work for the delegation of the European Union, so oh. this feels like this is tailor-made for me. Um, my are you question, the Atlantic Council? <laughs> <laughs> you are now. <laughs> my question is, um, you've been talking about your experience with Europe and your transatlantic, and the transatlantic partnership, which was fostered during the Cold War. Um, for me and my generation, which grew up after Cold War, it feels utterly difficult to regenerate and get a better understanding of what our generation can do for uh, a better rebranding and rejuvenating of the transatlantic partnership, especially when we look at where the United States is um, looking now towards Asia and how the pivot to Asia, both military and politically, is um, going towards. So my question is, in your different positions, what would, your, what would be your proposal to figure out a way to bring our generation into that dialogue to make sure that the transatlantic partnership is being bridged into a new generation? Thank you very I much. think this is a, a key question. Um, I certainly have had my experiences, particularly in Germany recently, uh, with, shall we say, very lively discussions of the Snowden revelations and NSA, as well as I do a lot of work on the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, so I hear a lot about investor-state dispute settlement, GMOs, and other exciting issues like that. But the question, and I'm going to start with Fred, of how do we get this generation that came of age during the Iraq War, the European generation, who were politically awakened during the Iraq War, and uh, Guantanamo, um, and now Snowden, um, and all sorts of other things where perhaps the view in Europe, for whatever reason, whether you agree here or not with those policy choices, they're not viewed that positively by some in Europe, and particularly Germany. And how do we rebuild that bridge in the places where it needs to be rebuilt? Yeah, the, um, it's so interesting, uh, in, in Berlin, uh, I probably, among intellectual classes, thinking classes, the anti-Americanism is pretty high right now, Snowden, NSA, and everything else. Yet, when uh, American movies, I, I think 24 was just there, when it was House of Cards, but one of them was just there, and there, and there were tens of thousands of people wanting to be extras in that movie and film, and they knew everything about it. So, I, I'm, I'm one of these believers in transatlantic communities instead of a transatlantic community. And I saw 
I, I went with my daughter to the Taylor Swift concert last night. And, and there were a lot of people with European accents and there were people holding signs, you know, Portugal greets Taylor Swift. You know, so, so that's one form, right? You can be a, a Swiftian or whatever they call themselves. The other form is technology and venture capital. There's this interesting community there. There's another form of scientists. There's another form of people. We, we have a Millennium Leadership Program at the Atlantic Council, which is very vibrant, very strong in next generation. And it brings together people interested in the environment and in energy and, and there's a very good young group there and, and we have European members of the class of uh, Damon's at 22, 24 that we picked from 800 applicants of the best young people around the world uh, and, uh, and there's, a, there's a good contingent there from Europe. So, but I think what we have to do is we have to focus on it again but not in the traditional way of, uh, although I love our young leaders program, Millennium Leadership Program, I think that's one way. But there are also a lot of different ways uh, across industries and across, uh, and across different interest groups. And now with social networking, it's so easy to do that. So, uh, so I, I do think there also is a lot of excitement about Asia right now. Americans are traveling to Asia, Europeans are traveling to Asia. So that's absolutely a natural phenomena. But we have to, uh, we have to intentionally uh, build new communities and then take existing communities and make them recognize that that's what they are. I think uh, we recently did a U.S.-German uh, consultation of young leaders and it was interesting that they wanted to focus in their report a lot less on foreign policy issues and more on communications among themselves or across the Atlantic and on such issues that have proven so difficult such as privacy. And I thought that was fascinating because they see themselves as the generation most equipped through their own experiences to address these core issues. And I applaud that, that effort that is on our website, the US-German talk. So let me see, we've had a lot of questions from over here. Let's have a question here. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for being here, first of all. Please my, identify yourself. My name is Sahan Tenwar. I'm a student uh, interning this summer in Washington, D.C. Uh, my question mainly is, uh, uh, when it comes to European internal politics, you've seen a lot of, you know, Eurosceptic parties come to come to power. Uh, you know, for example, the Finland election, the anti-NATO party, you know, got a, you know, majority vote. Uh, you're hearing people like uh, Marie Le Pen in France, you know, saying that this Euro project has become a failure, you know, and she, she said that if she's get elected, she has vowed to, you know, uh, do a Frexit, which is a, a you know France exit in the European Union, and you've seen a lot of like internal <coughs> European countries concerned about you know uh, Europe, uh, Euro, uh, you know concerned about the, the bureaucratic problems. So do you think do you think you know if a lot of these parties come into power and start you know uh, having these rhetoric coming in, would that be a threat to the to our interests within Europe? How do you I, I would just say a sentence on that. Yeah. I think it is what what we talked about earlier that the leaders of Europe need to take the European project to the people of Europe and make the case. And as long as they don't, it's a vacuum in which parties of the right and the left will fill. So it's really time for the leaders of Europe to make the case to the European people about what is the vision and strategy for Europe going forward. It's got to happen. Yeah, Absolutely. I think that answers the question. Okay. Let's go over here. Yes, uh, um, I'm Randall Fort with Raytheon. Uh, I'd like to get back to the 
uh, topic of the process by which these decisions will be made um, and just the policy will be decided going forward, particularly National Security Council uh, type apparatus. Um, underpinning all of this, of course, are astonishing changes in technology that are taking place every day across the board. The Internet of Things, hundreds of billions, soon to be trillions of things connected, virtual reality, autonomous systems, 3D printing, all these technologies will combine and converge in ways unforeseen today, but will probably have disintermediating impacts on both polities and, and economies. So just wonder, as you think about those technologies, where do you see, um, how do you see those having an impact in the ability of um, our decision-making apparatuses to, to make decisions in a time scale that is somewhat analogous to the rapidity that these technologies are changing? Let me add one thing to that, and it's not just those technologies, but for example, on the Greece negotiations, we had the remarkable ability to kind of have a ringside seat, and through Twitter and other things, you knew almost instantly what was going on, and people in the negotiations were tweeting out about what was going on yeah. in, a, in a way that would never have happened. Yeah. How does this real-time diplomacy work, and how does yeah. it work in, with... And what impact should it have on the interagency process in the NSC? Yeah. Yeah, uh, we are at uh, Fletcher um, building a center to look at exactly this. It's named after Edward R. Murrow. It's the Murrow Center. The uh, director <coughs> happens to be here, Edward Schumacher Matos. And I think it, it, it may be the question in diplomacy. Um, Steve was earlier talking about the uh, earlier arms control negotiations. Those were done pretty quietly and, and then had a kind of a rollout plan, and you know, that's just not how it's going to work anymore. And so I think the premium will be in this deluge of information that you correctly identify. Our technologies have created this swell of information. What our technologies have not yet done for us is help us filter it and prioritize it and create systems that integrate it for human consumption. I think that's the next wave of technology that needs to come. And some great companies, I'm sure Raytheon among them, are looking at that in a, in a combat warfighting context. But it's really much broader than that. It's filtering, understanding, um, pulling wisdom out of the sea of knowledge that's been put in front of us. No, Do you no I think it was a perfect answer. Hans, let's get Hans in. First, let me just, Hans Benedijk from Fletcher, uh, Sice, a number of other places now. Um, this has been a, a great launch to this partnership, and I can see already how this complementarity between these two institutions is really going to help both of them. Uh, I wanted to ask kind of a, a general question uh, about trilateralism. We focus mostly today on Europe, but if you look at Asia, um, you find uh, Tremendous challenges there coming from China. You see our allies in Asia um, quite concerned uh, about that challenge. And so one wonders about how we can put together a better trilateral approach to these fundamental challenges we're facing from Russia, from the Middle East, uh, from China, to sort of reorganize our alliances in a sort of different way. We have, we're, we're faced with narratives that are challenging the post-war narrative that we put together with our allies. And it seems to me that we need to think more constructively about a new trilateralism. 
Uh, this may be the strategy that we're looking for to replace a pivot, to sort of rebuild the transatlantic uh, piece of this and talk about new trilateralism. So can we, can we talk, there's obviously a weak link between Europe and Asia here that has to be built to do this. Uh, but is that a potential strategy to replace the pivot that we have today? Let me ask Steve to take a first shot at that. And then I'll give a very brief okay. advice to council what we're doing around this space. Why don't you go? But, uh, my, my, <laughs> mine will be brief, and then you can be lofty and strategic. <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, even as we're building out our Future Europe initiative, we're also building out our work on, on Asia. And, uh, and the reason for that is, is just what you're talking about. But then when you get to talking about trilateral, that's tricky. Uh, um, if Governor Huntsman were here, our chairman, he would tell you that everything he achieved while he was ambassador in Beijing was done together, everything important was done together with European allies. It wasn't planned as, gee, this is a transatlantic initiative. It was just that way. And so that is just the reality of things. The problem is most European countries have been seeing China and issues regarding to China primarily from a commercial standpoint and haven't been engaging with us as much as they could on some of these other strategic, I, I, I think that's a challenge for us and I think it would be great to do it. But when you say trilateral Asia, you know, you, you put Japan and China in the same room in that discussion even when you're trying to get Europe, I think you've got some things to sort out in Asia before you can start talking about trilateral. Uh, but there's absolutely no doubt that the bilateral relationship with China, with the U.S., is going to be the crucial bilateral relationship going forward. And it's going to be a lot easier to manage if we bring our European allies along with us. And, and, and we're going to work on that at the Atlantic Council. That's the reason we're, we're ramping up also uh, the Asia work. And, you know, that's the problem. <clears throat> We need as much, when you're dealing with the problems in Asia, we need as much weight as we can get. Europe has been our traditional partner, precisely because of the internal challenges within Europe. They don't have the, the attention or the focus. And Europe, if you talk to people in Asia, they say Europe shows up economically. It doesn't show up at all geopolitically. And yet they should be a, our geopolitical partner and help managing the challenges of Asia. So I think the sequence has to be we need to help Europe get its house in order and reestablish its vision and strategy and get support for that vision and then work with Europe so they can be not just an economic player in Asia but our geopolitical partner in working with our other friends and allies in the region to manly manage the challenge. The other thing is I think, you know, we all say about these three things, I think we've got to recognize how interconnected we are. And the way I would say that is the pivot to Asia is going to, its success is going to depend more on how we handle the Russians in Ukraine and the ISIS in the Middle East than it is going to depend on the number of basing agreements we sign up with Philippines and Vietnamese and all the rest. There is a connection now in the world that we've never seen before. And what happens in one place has global implications. And that's one of the things that compounds the management challenge because everything is now connected with everything. Can I add a no, thought on that? Please. Because we're now approaching the end of a wonderful 90-minute discussion about world strategy, and we've really talked about Europe, European Union, and we've talked a lot about the United States <coughs> and its role in China and how it fits together, the trilateral question. Um, as is so often the case, the, the missing huge component is India. We, we never seem to kind of 
think about India. They, they don't come up in many conversations. It's, it's exactly Dr. Hadley's point about have not been geopolitically engaged. And yet, if you look at the throw weight of India going forward, its population, it'll soon overtake uh, China as the world's most populous nation. It's a democracy. It's uh, got linguistic links with the world that are powerful. I, I think as we think strategically about the world, maybe not this decade, but as we go further into this century, I think India is going to be a, a, a much more important player than we often give credit for sitting here. So perhaps not trilateral, but quadlateral, but um, really thinking, thinking about India, which is very different than the Asia that I think was in your mind. And in the spirit of our collaboration, I'd like to invite you to our conference November 23rd and 24th in Mumbai Excellent. on megacities and <laughs> homeland security. So. Excellent. <laughs> so, as okay. well as all of you. Let me get, uh, is yeah. that Ian way in the back who's got his hand up? And Ian. then we'll come to this person over here. I think there's a bomb heading our way. <laughs> no, no, it's a softball. I'm just, I want to bring you back to uh, Ian Brzezinski from the Atlantic Council. I want to bring you back to the beginning of the conversation about the NSC. And I see up on the panel one individual who's run the NSC, and I see on the panel a person who's had sort of an outside view of the NSC from within the US government. It's a combatant commander, special assistant to the Secretary of Defense. Are there any recommendations you would have about how the NSC should be restructured or adjusted so that it can more effectively contribute to strategy uh, in US policy? Dr. Hadley. Well, this is a long, uh, a long conversation. Uh, and it is one of the things that <clears throat> I hope could be a, an aspect of this new partnership. Because in the strategy initiative, which we've gotten off the ground, one of the things we've concluded is that in addition to national strategies and regional strategies, we need to talk about processes and organization um, so that we can achieve our national security objectives in this very different world. And that takes into account the, you know, all the various um, shifts that we foresee that are in the Strategic Foresight Initiative and all the both challenges and opportunities of technology. So the bottom line is it needs to be rethought. It needs to be rethought and it needs to be restructured. But the essence of it, I think, is that it still needs to be focused on enabling the president to play the role that the president plays in foreign policy. And it needs to be focused on presidential initiatives, because if the NSC is not pushing the president's agenda, no one else in the government's going to do it. And it needs to be focused on those things where there needs to be a coordination of policy to bring all elements of our capacity to control. And stop, you know, stop. You know, we have, we, there's a tendency to pull every issue because you can into the White House, which is the most political part of the government. And I think one of the things we need to do is we need to th rethink, we need to prioritize, we need to have a much more modest concept of how the NSC should operate. And then we've got to look back and um, see if we can use technology to enable it and empower it 
And I think the other thing we need to do is we need to find out how we can get the job of strategic planning done in this modern age, either within the government or an alliance outside the government, and feed it realistically into the decision-making process. That's, I think, the single biggest failure of the NSC system really since the Kissinger days. It's very hard to get strategic thinking into that process, as you well know. And just from a combatant commander perspective, I, I will tell you, um, we need to look at the role of combatant commanders in the world. They're probably misnamed as combatant commanders. Um, they ought to be highly integrated interagency organizations. In my view, they should probably be led by civilians with a military deputy. These are the kind of topics I intend to write about in the strategic paper. And I think that, uh, to Steve's point, where you could create regional solutions and systems would be taking that regional model, putting a diplomat in charge of it, and a development expert alongside him or her, and a military deputy to conduct hopefully the very few military operations that you had to conduct. The system we have now, by its very nature, combatant commanders running these huge areas while our, our ambassadors are stovepiped into individual countries, um, probably not the right model for today's world. I think that's worth another look in this process as well. Me too. Bring in the final question, and I'm gonna ask you all in your responses to pick up any other strands of I'm Stanley Cooper, I'm a Fletcher alum. A year ago, Christine Lagarde, uh, the managing director of the IMF, said in a speech, quote, its own survival requires that Europe gets the young back to work. That was the word she used, survival. And then she added, solutions remain to be found. The managing director of the IMF admitted she does not have a good idea of how to address this problem. It is now a year later. We've had Greece. What we are seeing now is wealth destruction in Europe. The debt will not be paid. It has to be written off. So demand will go down further. In the absence of demand, how do you put the youth to work? And if you can't, is Europe's survival at stake? Gentlemen, I will say that uh, this is probably the biggest challenge facing Europe, and particularly the south of Europe, is they do have a demographic problem, yeah. but they have not been able to, even though they have a declining number of young people, right. they've not been able to find a way to put them to work in Spain, Portugal, uh, certainly in Greece. Um, this is part of the economy, and yet this is the uh, recipe for the economy that we are seeing in Europe right now, and particularly in the Eurozone. Does this concern you all? Um, of, course it, of course it concerns, and it touches on all the geostrategic things we've talked about. Um, I'm not the economist in the room, uh, but it occurs to me that, A, it's a globalized economy, so to think of it as simply a European problem to solve or an isolated European situation is probably not the right approach. We ought to be thinking about how different regions of the world can contribute to the global economy and create uh, both wealth and opportunity. Secondly, to continue to build human capital. Third, to Dr. Hadley's point, creating a vision and a sense of uh, a coherence in the political side, I think, gives hope. Now, hope is not a job and the job has to come, 
but I think if you connect the first two things I said with the political piece and you think about other large regions like the United States coming out of a depression in the 1930s, how was it done? What were the macroeconomic answers? They were along the lines of what I indicated. I'll be really brief and let uh, Steve Matt clean up. First of all, you know, the, the huge percentage of Fletcher alum at this meeting alone shows what, <laughs> the, the, this is a great launch. We're, we're everywhere. We're, we're very, we're, <laughs> we're, very uh, uh, the, we're very excited yeah. to work with you and this is, this is uh, We're tracking really your purple tie on our satellites well, right now. Well, you know, I, I, I sort of saw this might not have been the right tie for a public event, but anyway. <laughs> uh, the, um, uh, uh, you've given me an opportunity to give one more commercial for the Atlantic Council. Andrea Montanino in our Global Business and Economics program uh, came to me with an idea which has now become a major uh, thrust of his work here, and that's a European growth initiative. Uh, now, when the Atlantic Council does a European growth initiative, this isn't just about economics, it's really strategic. And if you look at uh, European growth over the last 15 years, it's been half U.S. growth. If that goes on for another 15 years, there will be political consequences that will worsen everything we've talked about for Europe for the future. Uh, and youth unemployment certainly above the list, but that's going to be more centrifugal forces, far right, far left, uh, less belief in Europe, uh, uh, you, know, you name it. It's, so, so I actually think European growth is huge. You can then argue, well, what's the best way there? I know austerity alone is not the best way there. You know, austerity plus, when you follow that up with other things, could be okay. Uh, 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 if Boyden Gray, our board member, was here, he would spend about a half an hour talking about deregulation, and I think he's not wrong. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of things to talk about it, but I think we have to elevate the discussion about European growth from an economic argument to a strategic argument. And I would just, uh, to Ian Brzezinski's question, which I did not answer very well, which is why we need to take a look at it, I, I guess I think two things that we need to think about. One is, if you look at the history of national security decision making over 40, 50 years, it's been one of increasing centralization. Mm -hmm. and pulling it up into the White House, and that's particularly true with this administration. <clears throat> and, you know, there's, and there are all kinds of reasons that are understandable for it. I think the question is, can we move radically in the other direction? Are the number of problems so numerous and complex that we're not getting the most out of the resources we have, and we need to push things down. We have to have a more distributed process that empowers and enables people down the organization, uh, in, in organized in, in sort of task force con, uh, formulations uh, um, to deal with problems. Secondly, the leverage of governments goes down every year with the new entrance in terms of business and NGOs and uh, empowered groups of all kinds and empowered individuals in a growing middle class that are making more demands of government. So, you know, and you know, if you look at the ISIS problem, it is a mobilization mi movement on steroids. Somebody on this platform said they were trying to counter ISIS propaganda, and so they decided to see if they would take over one hashtag that was an ISIS hashtag, and they mobilized the U.S. government, and they got a thousand messages on that hashtag in a period of time. And then they looked, and during that same period of time, ISIS put 100,000 yeah. inputs on that hashtag. 
So there is, the real challenge is can we mobilize all the resources of our society to deal with the kinds of challenges we face? That's a whole different way to think about the interagency process. And we need to be thinking in that space. So thank you all very much. Um, it seems to me that we've had an excellent, superb panel covering a truly remarkable couple of days with the Greek and Iran negotiations. There's a tough slog in front of both negotiations. Both of them could go off the rails. But there's also a third uh, negotiation that's been concluded, and that's the Fletcher Atlantic Council. <laughs> and so we hope that that negotiation will help provide the strategic insights that will help the other negotiations go forward the way they need to and be implemented. So thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for the